Good morning. It's my pleasure to be able to preach for you today. Um, and uh, I'm enjoying the family Sundays. I like having uh, the older kids in here. So younger kids, hi. Good to see you, Logan. Hi. Everyone else. You guys get everyone else. Uh, today we are um, are shifting gears. We, we are finally, finally in chapter six. <laughs> Um, it's been a journey, an exciting one at that, and uh, I know some of you are probably excited to be out of the husbands and wives, thank you wife, uh, out of the husband and wife section, and um, you know, it, it, it gets easier and it doesn't because we're kind of just swapping out the the uh, husband-wife name for parent name now, so uh, yes, we will be going after the kiddos a little bit more today. In verses 1 through 3, but there is plenty here for uh, mom and dad as well, and even grandmom and granddad. So with that, let's, uh, let's get right into our passage. In chapter 6, we're going to be doing verses 1 through 3, um, but for the sake of kind of bringing us into the chapter, I'm going to read uh, down to about verse 9. So it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. And bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. And masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Let's pray together. But Father, as we uh, begin kind of the last half of this divine relational order idea that we see in Ephesians, Father, I pray that you would help us remember the word that we have heard over the past months and really year. My Father, that the things from chapters 1 through 3 that give us so much life would be remembered as we look at how it practically works out in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And Father, as we get into something that's very near and dear to almost everyone's heart when it comes to their children, and Father, that we would not be too proud to hear your word. And Father, that we would look forward to the instruction that you have for our families, knowing that it's for our good and for your glory. That you are good to us, and you are holy in and of yourself. And Father, let us be obedient to your word, Father, that we might show a testament of your goodness to the world, Father, as we strive to live out the holiness that you require. Father, we love you, and we pray these things in your precious Son's name. Amen. I want to begin with a bit of a caveat. Um, it's going to be really easy today and next week for you to find reasons not to listen to me. I find reasons not to listen to me. Um, it's going to be really easy. See, when I was uh, a youth pastor in, in Vandalia, um, then people didn't have to listen to me because I didn't have kids yet and I wasn't married yet, right? Um, and then it was once I got married, I was married, but I didn't have kids yet. Now I have kids, but I don't have a boy uh, yet. We're still praying for that. Um, you should as well. I need a fourth to continue my lineage. Um, I'm the third, for those of you that don't know. Um, 
So I'm looking for a fourth. But I don't have a boy yet. And then maybe once I have a boy, I don't have six kids. And then once I have six kids, I don't have teenagers yet. Although by the time I have six, I might. Um, once I have teenagers, I don't remember what it's like to have young kids. And once my teenagers are gone, then I don't remember what it's like to have kids in this new culture and in this new age. Um, so whenever, whatever stage I am, whatever color my hair is when I'm behind the pulpit, there will always be a reason for me to be out of touch, as it were, with where some of you are living. Now, I have gained wisdom, I think, <laughs> from when I was uh, from 10 years ago, and that I do recognize that there's a significant leap between no kids to married to married with kids. Um, I, do, I do see that um, clearly, and I'm learning it more. Uh, so I, I certainly give grace to those of you that are life stages beyond me. Um, and for those of you that may be behind me in a life stage or two, um, there's great wisdom in that, all right? Just trust me. Um, and I have girls. They're the easy ones at the beginning, right? So um, don't don't look for reasons not to listen. It's not me you're listening to. And Paul, I think, even does a fantastic job of setting that example in this passage. It is Christ's word. It's God's word. It's his very character that we're looking at today uh, when we see this instruction of what does it mean to be obedient children. And then next week, particularly when we look at discipline and instruction, uh, particularly along the lines of the fathers, what does that look like in regards to the revealed uh, word of God. And so today, if you start to feel uh, a little bit of bristling or you start to try to write me off, um, just, just trust the word. Um, it's, it's my job to recognize my own uh, lack of experience, wisdom, whatever it may be. And I try to account for that as much as I can in my preparation and as I speak. Um, you just trust the word. All right, can we do that? Fair enough? Good. Let's have fun. Kids, you ready? All right. First point today, obey your parents because God is holy. All right. Obey your parents because God is holy. Paul is shifting gears here, and he says, just having listed in in different paragraphs, wives, husbands, now children, coming uh, in a few weeks, bond servants, then following that, masters. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And when he says children here, he's not just saying, hey, the children, he's addressing the children in the congregation, much like we have here today. They were indeed there. They're in their midst listening to this letter being read and being instructed from it. And he's referring to both male and female children. You see, in the day, it's going to be very likely um, that he would be only addressing the males. But Paul um, likes to break down those cultural barriers. Already addressing children at all in the public gathering is one step. And another step addressing both male and female And he's likely referring specifically to those children that are in the home. Who in here is a child? We all are, were, right? And so the question is, where's the cutoff? Who's he addressing specifically? I think likely this particular context is he's addressing those that are still in the home. Um, However, uh, there is free reign and implication to take most of these principles beyond and into adulthood, particularly when we begin talking about honoring. But... In our particular context, he's referring, I think, specifically to those that are in the home. And here he's addressing them specifically amongst the congregation. And what's interesting about this is if you look at just like the size disparity between everything on um, just submission under God, as we saw 
earlier in chapter 5, but then the large chunk of text for wives and husbands, and then compare that to the instruction that he gives the children, I think it's interesting that it's so significantly smaller. And what I think Paul is doing is giving them a simple message, all right? He's, adge- he's addressing the children, and so he gives them a necessarily simple message. It's one that can be understood. And so it's simply, children, obey your parents and the Lord. Why? For this is right. You should honor your father and mother because the Ten Commandments said to do it. And that's why you need to obey. Why? Because there's a promise for you. Done? Okay. You know, and if, if I were Greg, that would be how I would do it because he's an exhorter and he's good at keeping it simple. I'm a teacher, and so I'm going to make it complicated, all right? Um, to, to kick off, we'll start with John Chrysostom, an early church father. He says this, It's for this reason, moreover, that he makes this exhortation short, inasmuch as children cannot follow up a long argument. For this reason also he does not discourse at all about a kingdom, because it does not belong to the tender age of childhood to understand these subjects. But what a child's soul most especially longs to hear, that he says, namely, is that the child shall live long. For if anyone shall inquire why it is that he omitted to discourse concerning a kingdom, but set before them the commandment laid down in the law, he does this because he speaks to them as infantine. And he is well aware that if a husband and wife are thus disposed according to the law which he's already laid down, then there will be little trouble in securing the submission of the children. Is that complicated? I like those things. I can't help it. Now, one of the redeemed aspects of a teacher gift is that it should be understood. Um, So hopefully we can make this understood as well. What I do want to do is show you some of the background, particularly that Paul is pulling from in the Old Testament. There's a rich and deep allusion to the Old Testament, specifically the Ten Commandments that Paul is giving here and his commandment to children to obey their parents. For us, we need to see that, yes, he does it simply. Why? Because they're children. I think too often in the home we make our arguments to our younger kids, particularly, too difficult. We were reading a book the other night that was about the seasons, and I start reading it, and it looks good, and it's Fisher-Price, for Pete's sake, and you flip through it, and you get into the season, and then it starts talking about the Earth's axis, and, like, how we're tilted towards the sun, and I'm like, what's going on here? This just turned into a science book instead of a kid's book. Why are we getting into this? And then I look at another one that we had last night from the same line, and it's talking about plants. I'm like, sweet, let's do this flipping through there, and we start looking at cells, and like chlorophyll, and mitosis, and I'm like, I'm doing this in college, what's going on? So yeah, we make the kids' books even too difficult, right? And that, that, that's a, a danger, but what I think we need to see as, as parents leading, particularly as I'm looking forward to next week in the instruction and discipline of the Lord, but we've got to be able to understand uh, some of these arguments so that we can lead them better and so that the greater understanding we have of the whole allows us to more clearly and concisely give them a small and simple command. Does that make sense? The better we have an understanding of the big complex argument of scripture as a whole, the easier it is for us to distill it into simple commands that our children can follow. Because one of the huge dangers that we're going to talk about next week is leading our children as you see and provoking them to anger. And giving our children complex things that they can't understand, asking them to do things that are beyond them will provoke your children and they will not trust you. And so we need to have a strong understanding of their primary and really only command, obey your parents. So let's jump into here. Aren't you grateful for the added beauty that he gives the marriage treatment? 
He explains it so well and how we are to love our spouses and how we are to lead as husbands and ladies, how we are to submit in a loving manner. And here, it's just, it's simple. It's beautiful in its simplicity, but it's limited in its scope. So what we want to do then is look at the full scope. So obey your parents. A good question I think that we should ask at the beginning, and one that I had, is why does the apostle use the word obey first instead of honor? Honor has a greater extent of meaning, and it speaks more broadly than obey does. Obey is very specific in nature, and honor is pretty, pretty substantial. And why does he use the word obey here? Particularly because when he does quote the Old Testament, the quotation is honor your parents, right? It's not obey your parents. So where does obey come from? Why does he use that? And John Calvin says this, it's because obedience is the evidence of the honor which children owe to their parents. And it's therefore more earnestly enforced. It's the first priority. It's also, likewise, more difficult. For the human mind recoils from the idea of subjection and with difficulty allows itself to be placed under the control of another. I typically try to keep my quotes to ones that can say it better than I ever can come up with. And when you come to the idea of parenting, a lot has been written on that, and there's a lot of good stuff. So I'm going to be pulling from a couple different people today. But Calvin here is talking about the idea of obedience is the evidence of honor. And so he leads with that because it's the most important, but also it's also the most difficult. And see, when we think about obeying and we think about submission, the idea of obedience and submission is just foreign to our mind, and we've talked about that at length for the past couple months. And we would be remiss if we don't give our children the same grace that we afford ourselves. It's not easy for them to obey. It's, it's foreign to them. And ideally, when we're talking about a Christian family, it's only Christian because mom and dad are believers, right? The children are yet unregenerate. And so if they do not yet have the help of the Holy Spirit, in what possible capacity can you enforce them to want to submit? We have a hard enough time with the Spirit. Gentleness is going to win the day next week. So, obedience is difficult. But the problem is that obedience is still paramount. It's still of most importance in the family concerning children. Children, you have nothing more important to do with your time in your home than to obey your parents. I know. Now, none of you like me anymore, and I'm not Rusty, the, the fun guy. I get it. I'm sorry. There's nothing more important for you to do in your time at home than to obey your parents. Why do I say that? Well, obedience is due to both of your parents, right? First of all, it's not just dad. The dad should be the leader in the home, and he exercises good Christian male headship, as we've talked about for the past several weeks. But it's also to the mother, right? The mother's submission to her own husband does not remove her parental dignity. In fact, it rather increases it. In fact, that she is also under the head, the father, does not diminish her importance. In fact, it increases it. And the child is to be both subject to mom and to dad. Now, why do we say that obedience is so important? And where, where do we get some of this? If you think about children, children in the church have a responsibility to live as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, for Paul, part of what characterizes Gentile culture as standing under God's judgment is that it's marked by children's disobedience to their parents. If anything stood out to me this week, it was, it's this coming section. 
We're getting ready to read two passages. First in Romans chapter 1, if you want to flip there real quick. In Romans chapter 1, we see a, a, lengthy, a lengthy first chapter that's just rife with combativeness um, and an expression of Paul's understanding of the Gentile wor- world versus the redeemed world. And Paul uses disobedience to parents as a named characteristic of a Gentile culture that is under judgment from God. And in all the times that I've read this passage and the next, I have missed that this was stuck in there with all the other ones. All right? So let's read it. Romans chapter 1, verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Have you ever caught that one in there? I'll be honest, I haven't. I've read this, this section many times. I've done class on Romans. I, I've seen it. But I always miss the idea of being disobedient to parents. Smashed in there between inventors of evil and then foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Right? I've never seen that in there. Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And the next one, you don't have to flip there. You can write it down, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 1-5. through 5. It says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For peoples will be lover of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, and not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Totally miss it in there too. You go from proud, arrogant, abusive, smashed disobedient to their parents right in there, and followed up with ungrateful, unholy, and heartless. I've never seen that before. But Paul, to Timothy and to the Romans, puts disobedience to parents right smack dab in the middle of them. And these are all marks of, of the Gentile culture. And uh, it's why, honestly, that Matt and I are careful uh, with membership in general, but specifically even membership of children at Renovation Church. I mean, we, we need to think through the concept of our children, particularly as they get to the teenage years, and they profess Christ, and then they want to uh, pursue membership. What about in the situations where we would deny membership to children? First as elders, and then the church at large. Because they have a pattern of being like a Gentile. Of being disobedient to their parents. And, and what if on the flip side they are uh, given membership? Then we have to practice church discipline against children as they get older and become teenage, older teenagers or even out of the home. We have to practice church discipline for this very reason of them being disobedient to the parents. 
It's not that we're against that. There's certainly the danger that any one of us could fall into patterns of sin like this. But it's a very careful thing that we need to be concerned about when it comes to children. You think about this weightiness that comes with Paul's admonitions here. In Romans, he says that these people deserve to die, and yet they continue and give approval to those who do it. And social media is covered with that. They have the appearance of godliness, yet they deny its power. Our culture is obsessed with appearance. That's what social media is too. I just posted a picture today of my beautiful backyard scene where three children are calmly sitting in front of a fire with one in front of them entertaining them. My slogan's funny. Um, and that's my peaceful backyard. That was like 10 seconds of the entire night, right? Everything else was crazy. We we're obsessed with appearance. I'm more obsessed with peace and quiet, but obsessed with appearance, right? If social justice concerns and protests, all of these things of even that which are good, we're supposed to stand up for the downtrodden. We're supposed to stand up for widows and orphans and those who cannot defend themselves. And I wholeheartedly support that. But not at the extent of us giving an appearance of care when we don't care. Not of giving an appearance of caring and loving people and even sacrificing when it costs us nothing. Or when it's simply for our pride or for our self-righteousness. It's not okay. And our culture and our churches are full of people who have the appearance of godliness yet deny its power. See, this appearance thing is something that parents are also obsessed about with their kids. We're obsessed with the idea of having our kids appear to be perfect. Why? Because it makes us look perfect. And rather than be concerned about the heart, rather than be concerned about the child's soul, we're more concerned about their appearance and them making us look good. Now, it's not unreasonable that we should have children who want to give back to their parents, right? That they should want to give back to their parents. Why? Because it's a matter of training them for the future. It's not an appearance issue. It's a character issue. When he would lead us away from wicked practices, when Paul would lead us away from wicked practices, and he's just about to enter into virtuous ones, good ones for us to follow, it's this first thing that he gives to the children. Honor your parents. You see, as they are among all others, your parents are first and foremost above everyone else in this world right under God to the child. They're the authors of your very being. And so it's reasonable that they should be able to be the first to reap the fruits of your right actions and then all the rest of mankind. But catch this. If a man has no honor for his parents, then he will never be gentle towards those who are unconnected with him. You have people protesting that appear to have honor. I'm not naming any specific protests. There's like eight of them going on right now, okay? I'm staying out of the political realm and all of that. Just protests in general, okay? We have people that seem to have care for others that do not. Why? Because they don't obey their parents. And so the honor that they are appearing to have for others is fake. It is false and it is for themselves. That's not real honor. And so what happens then at large in our communities and in our culture is we have people at home that cannot honor their parents. They never learn to. They're not commanded to. They're not disciplined to. And so then they get into workplaces and they have no honor for their 
bosses. They get into schools and they have no honor for their teachers. They get into marriages and they have no honor for their spouses. And then they have kids and guess what? Rinse and repeat. And so what are we supposed to do? Avoid such people. They are given over to death. It seems harsh, and it is. But there are people under God's judgment. We're going to return to this. It is hard, and it should be. And we'll talk about why it's so hard and why it's so harsh. So, so why then do we obey? Well, to avoid becoming that, to avoid becoming under the judgment of God, but why? What does Paul give? Paul doesn't go to the negative. He says this, In the Lord, for this is right. In the Lord, for this is right. See, it's the Christian home that comes to mind. If you look at the parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3, you can see that it's very similar but slightly different. And the two together, this passage and the Colossians one, really interpret each other. And so when it's talking about this son or daughter obedience to the parents, it says that this pleases the Lord. So instead of in the Lord for this is right, it says obey your parents for this pleases the Lord. And so even children in their simple way can know what it means to love in the Lord and to obey for his sake. And we think about young, young children, my children, the ones that are not in this room. They're not going to be able to grasp the rational argument, right? Do it or you get a spanking. Do it because you love daddy. Do it because you love mommy. Do it because your love towards mommy and daddy is a reflection of your love for God. That's as far as you go from two, three, and four, right? Well, sometime around four or five, maybe six, <laughs> depends, um, you start the beginning to get some rational argument and understanding, right? But even in their simple way, my, my children know that they can obey me to show me that they love me. It doesn't necessarily reign supreme in their heart when they see a chocolate bar, but they know. <laughs> they know. And certainly as they get older and they're amongst our midst even today, you can understand that. They know what it means to love in the Lord and to obey for his sake. That it's something outside of them. That it's something even outside of their family. No, they're not going to write a paper on it, but they can see that something else is there. Gregory the Great, this is not Greg's cover band on his solo album. Um, <laughs> it says this. It says, let the children learn how to order their inward thoughts before the eyes of the hidden judge. The parents, how also to those who are committed to them to afford outwardly examples of good living. This is Pope Gregory the Great from a long time ago. And um, we'll meet him in December at the church history class. Shameless plug. Um, children, I, I like this, this statement. Write this one down. This is one of like four I'm going to give you today. Let the children learn how to order their inward thoughts before the eyes of the hidden judge. That's what you want them to learn, parents. That's what you want them to learn. Not appearance. Not, not the appearance of godliness, none of this stuff. Not, not how to dunk a basketball and, heads up, no one in here will be able to. Um, not how to throw touchdowns, it's not going to happen. That's not what we're pushing. What we want our kids to be able to do is learn how to order their inward thoughts before the hidden judge. Think about that, that's massive. That's massive in the sense that that is like the scope of our 18 years of parenting. And then even beyond if there's anything I can teach my kids to do, I want them to be able to learn how to order their inward thoughts 
before the hidden judge. We're asking our children to get control of themselves in a rational, godly state and be able to think through wisely, as the Proverbs is going to definitely hearken on and on and on, wisely order their thoughts before someone they can't see, a hidden judge, a judge that one day will render judgment upon them. And for now they can see us, but there's a hidden judge that we want them to be able to order their inward thoughts. I think that's beautiful, beautiful. And then for the parents, also to those that are committed to them to afford outwardly examples of good living. Parents, your job is to give them examples. We're going to hit that a lot towards the end of today. But learn how to give them good examples. So, I think that helps illustrate the reason for obedience in such a striking and stern and severe way that he gives, right? Obey your parents, for it's right. That's it. That's pretty harsh. It's pretty stern. It's very straight to the point, right? Why? Because this is right. Now, perhaps his thought is that it's accepted as proper in every society, and indeed it is. Uh, it could also be because of the Old Testament, and he backs it up with the Old Testament. And that it's in accordance with the example of Christ himself. You look at Luke 2, 51 and 52, right? Jesus grew in wisdom and in favor with man, right? In stature and wisdom and in favor with man. Uh, Jesus was his own example as a child, and then certainly in the gospel. And John Stott would, would, would say the same thing. He gives three grounds for the obedience of children in a Christian home. Nature, the law, and the gospel. Every culture throughout history has had kids obey their parents, some more forcefully than others. But that's a natural law. That, that's, that's common grace. That's something that is written on the hearts of man, right? That's a, that's a long theological explanation um, wrapped up right there. But second, then the law. God is explicit in his law. And the Ten Commandments, and then further. And then finally, the gospel. So I think there's three grounds for which we can say to our children, you need to obey. Nature, the law, the gospel. But I think it's also trying to carry this idea of a reminder that in some things, children are just going to have to accept and follow things before they can see all the reasons. That's a very natural thing, very common thing. And indeed, the reasons can be tough sometimes. And so when they ask why, I think even then we sometimes get caught, right? We're at a loss. Why do I need to do that? Because I said so. Because it's the right thing to do, right? Who's done that? Come on, liars. We're going to work on that too. <laughs> All right. Because it's the right thing to do. I don't know. I, it is. I don't know why. Us being able to think through our convictions is a huge piece to being good examples of good living as parents, right? So why do that? Well, what do, you, what do we mean by giving good examples? What do we mean by having the right thing or because this is right? What does Paul mean? Well, I love this beautiful gem from John Calvin. Here's another one for you. Ready? He proves it to be right because God has commanded it. For we are not at liberty to dispute or call into question the appointment of him whose will is the unerring rule of goodness and righteousness. He didn't have microphones back then, but he dropped it. We're done, right? I mean, 
He proves it to be right because God has commanded it. So in looking at the commandments of God, we are not at liberty to dispute or call into question the appointment of him whose will is the unerring rule of goodness and righteousness. So why do it? Because it's right. Why is it right? Because it's from God. And God is perfectly good and he is perfectly righteous. Got it, Chapman? That's what dad's going to say next time, all right? So children, what I'm telling you to do, maybe don't say why, okay? Because um, that could come. Yeah, so you got that. Put that on a, on a uh, post-it note or an index card and stick it on your mirror, okay? You're going to learn that, moms and dads. Why? Because we have no right and we are not at liberty to dispute or call into question the appointment of him whose will is the unerring rule of goodness and righteousness. So when we hear words like dispute and question, I think that starts to give us an idea of what obedience is not, right? It brings us to a very needed discussion. What do we mean by obedience? It's not enough for me to get up here, I think, and say, obey your parents. You know what that means, right? What, what do we really mean by obedience? And Most of you know that I'm a huge fan of the Trip Brothers. Uh, it's what we use almost exclusively in our parenting conferences at Renovation. Um, and hopefully, hopefully, you've heard me say this frequently. If you haven't, um, maybe I need to say it more, or I don't know, I'm, maybe I'm not around you. Most of you have heard me say this, that by obedience I mean this, and this is from the Trip Brothers, without challenge, without delay, without excuse. How many of you have heard me say that? Interactive morning, come on. Three teams lost that were above Ohio State yesterday. You should be rejoicing, all right? We will be number two by Tuesday, all right? Who all, who's heard me say that? Without a, okay, good, all right. Th- that's what we're talking about. Largely, that's what we're talking about. Without challenge, without delay, without excuse, Think about this in the various levels of your children's development or wherever you are, uh, child. Kids, without challenge, without excuse, without delay, obey immediately. We get into preteens, right, and they're becoming independent, right, and we're supposed to foster independence and, and, you know, all of that. And, you know, discourse is good, but obedience still means without challenge, delay, or excuse. Teenagers, you're getting ready to leave the home. Mom and dad ask you to do something. You're independent. You can drive, maybe. You have chores. You maybe even have a job and have your own bank account. You still obey without challenge, without excuse, without delay. That's obedience. Why does it not change? Why does it not change from 3 to 13 to 18? Because when you leave your home and you're your own man or own woman, you are still your own man or woman under God. And God will and has been issuing commands to you that you obey without challenge, without excuse, and without delay. Think about, parents, how often we do this with God. How do you challenge God? (laughs) Thank you, Marley. (laughs) Ready to participate. Are you ready to answer for Daddy? Is that what we're doing? Okay. (laughs) How do you challenge God? What excuses do you give him? Either for failing to obey immediately or not wanting to do what he asks. How do you delay in obeying him? Now look, to be clear, there's conversation that happens at home, right? It's not robotic. It's not necessarily wrong for mom to ask you to take the trash out and you say, Mom... Would it be okay if I did that 
after I finish this level. All right? Speaking from my heart here, I got it, okay? Nothing wrong with that. What we're not doing is bargaining, we're not telling, and we're not demanding. All right? Kids, you can't bargain, command, or tell, okay? You can ask, but your initial thought should be, okay. All right? Cool? All right, so just to get that out of the way, I get that it's not robotic at home. But, I mean, this is what we're talking about here. Because if we look at Scripture, it's rife with examples of biblical characters, even ones that are in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, who give challenges, who delay, who excuse, right? Think about Adam, the first excuser. It's this woman that you gave me. Your fault, God. My bad. I'm out. It's your fault. This woman that you gave me, she did it. Excuses, excuses, excuses. That's our, I think that's men's typical one. Uh, Moses does it too, right? Moses has excuses. God, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not good at, at the talking. I can't speak. All right, I'll give you Aaron, right? So he gives excuses. Think about Jonah. We're getting ready to head there in a little bit as a church. Delay, right? Delay. Delay in the opposite way. As much a delay as is possible. Miriam and Aaron challenging Moses or challenging God, really. When we challenge our leaders, we're challenging God. They challenge him, and Miriam is struck with leprosy. And then the very leader that she challenged prays for her to be healed. And then, of course, we think about Israel. <laughs> Paul tells us in Corinthians that they were given to us as an example what not to do. Don't do what they did. There are massive exercise of challenging God from entering into the promised land and challenging God's promises that he would give it to them to challenging them at, really at every front. And so, why? Why should we obey without challenge, excuse, or delay? What makes obedience right or just is that it conforms to God's holy commandment. And his holy commandments are the expression of his holy character. Obey because God is holy. The commands come from a holy God, and so we obey his holy character and commands. The second, honor your parents to honor God. Honor your parents to honor God. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your mother and father. This is the first commandment with promise. I think when we talk about the idea of honor now, if we switch gears from obedience to honor, when we talk about honor most of the time, we speak of it in terms of like the negative examples, what it doesn't mean. Honor does not mean this. Don't do that. That's not honoring, right? I mean, when we think about what, what does it mean to honor, how many examples can you give? You should do what, right? Here's an example. Um, you know those like sheets that your kids get about like, tell me about your family in preschool or in first grade or whatever. And it's got like, mommy is, and then it's like beautiful, pretty, amazing, awesome, right? It's got like grandpa is my hero, that kind of thing. You know what I'm talking about? You've seen those? An example of not honoring would be dad is fat, all right? <laughs> that won't work. All right, it may be true, but that's not how we honor mom and dad, or at least dad in that case. Grandpa can be your hero, but dad is just fat. That's a negative example of what it means to not be honoring, right? It's not happened yet. She can't write. Um, 
But both here and in Colossians 3.20, the, the counterpart to this, you have the term honor from the fifth commandment being given the specific direction of obedience. Again, like I said earlier, he takes this example from the, from the Pentateuch, or, uh, yeah, from the Pentateuch, um, from the uh, Decalogue, that's what I'm looking for, the Ten Commandments. He takes that commandment, and instead of simply just saying honor your parents, he gives a specific instruction in the New Testament to obey. And so obedience is the evidence of honor and of love. And we're going to develop both of those here in a second. And so obedience comes first because it's evidence of honor. He says, obey your parents, honor them. And he's quoting the Old Testament there. You have quotes in your, in your Bibles. He's quoting there. Why? You see that the law of God has lost its power to condemn those who are in Christ. So we're not going to lead with the law specifically because it can't condemn those who are in Christ, right? Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And the observance of the ceremonial law has been repealed. It's been done away with, right? Why? Because of the fulfillment of Christ. We see this in Ephesians 2.15. We see this in Colossians 2.16 and 17. However, the weightier matters of the law, as Jesus describes in Matthew 22, and sorry, 23, are revelations of God's character. And those provide permanent ethical examples, permanent principles that Paul is in quoting here. He's quoting Exodus 20.12. And they define the Christian's calling to respond to, listen to this, divine grace with love for God, and love for others. And that is what fulfills the law, Romans 13. One of these principles is that children must honor their parents. They must honor their parents because that is from the weightier matters of the law. That is from, as we said earlier, the character of God. This is what it means to respond to and with divine grace with love for God and love for others. And so this commandment still carries all of its weight. Now, how much weight does it really carry? In Leviticus chapter 19, there's a, a statement from the law book, right, Leviticus, to speak, sorry, I'll just read it. Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them this, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. What do you expect to come right after this? Something God-centered, right? Love God, do, do something spiritual, righteous, to exemplify holiness, right? Verse 3, every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. Then you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods that cast metal. I am the Lord your God. It goes on for a long time. Leading off the command in the Old Testament to the Israelites to be holy is to revere your mother and your father. That's incredible. Missed that one too, right? That's incredible. The prominence with which Scripture as a whole gives the position of mother and father. Why? Because it's everything that is training up a child in the character of God. Everything. And so we, we see this command to honor, but it's not just by itself. I, I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge the fact that Paul immediately follows it up with this idea of this promise. So let's discuss the promise real quick. And the promise is this, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And where does this come from? When we evoke this commandment from the Old Testament, what comes with it is this idea of blessings and curses. 
because it's wrapped up in this idea of the covenant. When we have this commandment coming from a covenant, which the Old Testament is the entirety of the Old Covenant, right? At least before Jeremiah. When it comes with this command, it comes with the covenant. And the covenant has blessings and curses. And if you did renovate us this week, hopefully uh, you you saw this because it's a long chapter in Deuteronomy 28. But what I want to outline for you is the fact that obedience to the covenant demands brings blessing. Disobedience to covenant commands brings curse. And we talked about this a lot in our series, Gospel and Kingdom. Still available on the website. Still one of our favorite uh, series that we've done. This idea of covenant carries with it blessings or curses. So briefly, we'll read the the opening statements for each of the the blessings in and then the curses. In Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 2, it says, If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And he lists about like 13 verses of blessings. You jump into verse 15, we have the opposite side. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. All these curses, verse 45, shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. So, earlier, Romans and 2 Timothy, why so harsh? This. This. If you don't obey, these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. The thing is, children, your obedience to your parents is born from covenant relationship. You say, well, what covenant? I didn't enter into a covenant. Mom and dad entered into a covenant when they got married. All they did was have me. That's not a covenant. But you are brought into the covenant family. See, in the Old Testament covenant, there were people brought in that didn't even agree. In fact, that was one of the first great covenants. God put Abraham to sleep and said, yo, I'm making a covenant with you, and I'm going to do it all. He did nothing. He fell asleep. He was knocked out cold. Yet he was still in covenant. And so children, you are brought into covenant, in the covenant family. And so your obedience to your parents is then born from that covenant relationship. Now, that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing, as Paul's trying to say. It comes with good things. It comes with lots and lots of blessings. As a believer, in in Ephesians chapter 1, we saw that we have tons of spiritual blessings. Not just tons, all of them. All the blessings. All yours. In Christ, right? So kids, there is blessing in finding obedience and covenant relationship with your parents. And so by evoking, or invoking rather, the promise and its blessings, it also brings with it the accompanying curses for disobedience. And so implicit, then, is the destruction as the opposite of long life. On one hand, he's encouraging them with long life, but there needs to be a recognition, and this is why I wanted to develop this. Parents, if your children are not living in obedience, they're going to find themselves in destruction. That is implicit in the passage. It comes with a promise of long life, and it'll go well for you. If you don't obey your parents, it comes with 
disaster. What does he mean then by the good part? Live long in the land. Well, the idea of the land is that just the idea of a land that's their own outside of Egypt, that it was flowing with milk or honey or not, was just beyond anything that the Jews could conceive of as being more happy or desirable. The land was everything to them. Calvin says this, The promises annexed or attached to the commandments are intended to excite our hopes and to impart a greater cheerfulness to our obedience. And this is my favorite line from, the, from all my study this week. Write this down. I love this language, and this is partly because Dad is fat and I like food. All right, Paul uses this idea of the promise of, ch- of cheerfulness, all that, as a kind of seasoning to render the submission which he enjoins on children more pleasant and agreeable. He does not merely say that God has offered a reward to him who obeys his father and mother, but that such an offer is specific and special to this commandment. It's a type of seasoning. I love that. A kind of seasoning to render the submission that he's imparting onto the children as more pleasant and agreeable. Have you ever had Italian food without a seasoning? Like none. Just the, just the tomato. All right. Some of you are home gatherings. Yeah, right. Okay. It's really cheap. Garlic. Okay. Um, basil. All right. Just those two. And a little bit of salt. Do that. And all of a sudden, we've gone from Italian food to Rome. All right. I mean... There's a big difference the seasoning brings, right? Stouffer's is easy. Stouffer's with garlic, salt, and basil. Awesome-ish, all right? Helps a lot. Seasoning makes it more palatable, and that's what we're talking about. This promise that comes with it makes it more palatable. What a grace. What a grace that is. It's not just eat your peas. Eat your peas with salt, all right? That's special. <laughs> it makes a difference. It makes it easier. You see, Paul, God easily could just say obey because I'm holy. Do it. But there's this great promise that he attaches with it, not just here in the New Testament. It's not happy God time. It's Old Testament God time gives this too. So, and the New Covenant, the promise of the land is not a physical land, right? In the New Testament, we're not talking about the physical land of Canaan anymore. Right? It's instead our time on earth and eternal life. But this promise is given to us when one is regenerated here and now, and then it comes into full reality in the age to come. Right, That term that we've talked about for years, inaugurated eschatology, the already, not yet. You get it now. You get a taste of it now, just like we saw in Ephesians chapter 1, and you get the full reality of it in the future. Children can have a long and good life here on earth when they are not found in uh, judgment under God, as we saw in Romans and in Second Timothy. And they're not going to fall into the pattern that is typical of people that are in those lists of vices. See, Paul is not teaching salvation on, salvation on the basis of works. The obedience of children is evidence that they know God. And it results in receiving blessings from God. So, you want us to baptize your children after they make a profession of faith. We want to see obedience. Obedience is an example that they know God. Where do I get that from? I'm glad you asked. First John 2, 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. First John 2, 4. Whoever says, I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. 
and the truth is not in him. First John 3.22, or 3.22, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. First John 3.24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. First John 5.3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So this is obedience and love, and that, that brings us then to the heart of the gospel in all of this. This is our call to respond to the divine grace of God and love for God, and then love for others, and thereby fulfill the law. When we made fun of people whose church statement is simply love God, love people a few weeks ago, this is the more involved version that we're talking about, right? Love God, love people, yes, first and second greatest commandments. But it's more than that. That's everything that we've just discussed. This obedience and love brings the heart of the gospel to us and that our call is to respond to the divine grace of God in us and through us, his love for us and our love for others. And that's how we fulfill the law. We want to see in a true example of children who are redeemed who love God, who love people, then we will see that they obey their parents and honor them. The commentator says this, Offspring are sadly deficient in natural affection who act impatiently or callously towards those that gave them birth. Any child of right feeling would be concerned to hide rather than disclose a parent's infirmities. They would hesitate to cross even their prejudices or preferences. And they would indignantly resent any unjust aspersion cast upon their name. How many a sacrifice fathers and mothers have made on their behalf. Surely, a sense of indebtedness of itself enjoins that we should give some return on the loving care of our parents by every means in our power. That's honoring mom and dad. There should be something within a child that says, look how much they've given me. I've got to give something back. Something. Our culture makes it all about them. Makes it all about their practices. It makes it all about their sports. It makes it all about their preferences. We get to Christmas and it's not about what can I give mom and dad. It's what did I get. We'll talk about that more later. Why is this so significant? The significance of this arrangement is that it brings the honoring of our parents into our duty to God. This is surely right. Look, the significance of honoring mom and dad, of obeying them, is that it brings the entire physical realm of our actions into the idea of our duty to God. At least during our childhood years, all right, kids, while you were children and mom and dad when you were kids, your parents represented God to us, right? They mediate for us his authority and his love. It's not just authority and it's not just love. All right? Avery got beat up at the playground the other day. Um, caretaker, I don't know if it was mom, was like this close to him. And was, oh, don't do that. Don't do that. Bro, if she starts bleeding, I'm going to drop you, all right? I was kind and everything. But I have girls, and uh, they don't just wrestle, all right? Daddy kills people. Um, 
That's how that goes. So I'm here today, not locked up, um, nonetheless. Right, we, we mediate to them authority and love. Love without authority is not love. Authority without love is not right authority. We mediate to them a, a position of God that they can see. So we, the, the parents, or kids to parents and parents when you were kids, are to honor parents, right? Acknowledge their God-given authority. And so give them not only our obedience, but also our love and respect as well. Obedience by itself is not enough. Why honor after obedience? Because honor brings about the attitude. Honor brings about the heart. Obedience is simply rote duty. Honor is about the heart and really their own character. It's because parental authority's divinely delegated authority that respectful obedience to parents was invested with such great importance in the life of God's covenant people. Again, in Leviticus, comes right after the statement, be holy because I am holy, honor your mom and dad. Reverence for parents was thus made an integral part of reverence for God as their God and of their special relationship to him as his people. The Israelites, unlike any other nation, had respect for mother and father because it represented divine authority given to the parents over the children, and so they must be revered. And hence, the extremely severe penalty, death in fact, which was to be inflicted on anyone who cursed his parents and, as Scripture says, on the stubborn and rebellious son who refuses to obey and defies their warning, discipline, and proves to be incorrigible. Why death? Because rejection of divine authority is, on earth is rejection of divine authority in heaven. Now, just to clear up any concern, it's not disobey once, you're dead. All right, pattern, <laughs> pattern of that, all right? If they prove to be... Uh, Incorrigible. If they prove to be stubborn and rebellious, then they are to be put to death in front of everyone. It says, so that the Israel may see and fear. Fear the Lord your God. He's holy. Obey your authority. It's divine authority. Why do we do this? Because we live as new kingdom citizens. We live as new kingdom citizens. Ultimately, this promise to live long in the land is to live well in the new kingdom. See, the Jews could not conceive of a better place, but we can. The land was a shadow, a shadow fulfilled in Christ. And his kingdom is the better, fuller land. See, there's no discontinuity here. It may seem that way. You have old kingdom and new kingdom. But there's no discontinuity here. The only thing that changed is the fall. I'm going to read this. It should be on the screen. A long thing from John Stott. Excellent. Frames up all of this, all right? It is he who as creator first established order in family and society. And in the new society which he is now building, he does not overthrow it. There is an essential continuity between the old order and the new, between the original creation and the new creation in Christ. Families have not been abolished. Men and women still marry and have children. In the Lord, there are still husbands and wives, parents and children. What has changed relates to the ravages of the fall. For the family life, which God created at the beginning and pronounced to be good, was spoiled by human rebellion and selfishness. Relationships fell apart. Society was fractured. 
Love was twisted into lust and authority into oppression. But now in the Lord, by his reconciling work, God's new society has begun. Continuous with the old and in the fact of the family life, but discontinuous in its quality. For now, all our relationships are transformed precisely because they are in the Lord. They are purged of ruinous self-centeredness and suffused instead with Christ's love and peace. Even obedience to parents has changed. It is no longer a grudging acquiescence in parental authority. Children uh, learn to obey with gladness, for this pleases the Lord. They remember the loving submission which Jesus himself gave as a boy to his parents. Now this same Jesus is their Lord and Savior and the creator of the new order. And so they are anxious to do what pleases him. So how do they learn to honor? Well, certainly, as he just said, they have Jesus' example. But guys, they also have your example. They also have your example. You see, children are gifts. But they're not ultimate. They're not ultimate. Just like at Christmas, you don't want your kid to be totally wrapped up in his gift. You want him to appreciate the gift giver. Now listen, understand, children are not ultimate. Children are not for parents. Rather, parents are for children. Now, don't confuse the two, and certainly don't make them mean the same thing. When I talk about parents are for children, I want to make sure that I properly illustrate what I mean. Um, one of the great commentators that I was able to come across, not just Stott and others, but one that some of you may know, Jim Gaffigan, um, phenomenal commentator on life, not scripture, um, gave this example. Uh, he and his wife go to the, um, mind blank, uh, it's a big hole in the ground in Arizona, Grand Canyon, thank you. Go to the Grand Canyon, I should have wrote this down trying to ad-lib off the top of it with just a name. Him and his wife go to the Grand Canyon, and uh, they go with another couple who has a newborn infant. And Jim and his wife are yet childless, uh, which is amazing because they have a lot. And they go there, and they get this hotel together, and uh, it's got that, like, join-between room, which is cool because they'll be able to spend a lot of time together. Um, so they get into their hotel and go into their different rooms, and him and his wife are getting, you know, their stuff put away and everything. And then all of a sudden, the uh, other couple comes through that, that, you know, weird middle thing that joins the two rooms together, right? Uh, and then they come over, not just themselves, but with their luggage, right? And Jim's looking at them like, why are you in our room? Oh, it's not your room. It's our room. That's the baby's room. This is our room. We're here with you guys. Shh. We finally got him down, all right? What? Now, fortunately, there's a big hole in the ground outside, so he can go put them in there. Um, that is not what I mean by parents are for children, all right? Yes, you should do good things for your children, but not that, all right? That's not what we're talking about. What do we want them to have? We want to teach them. We want to be models for them in this, in this stuff. Have well-ordered thoughts for a hidden judge. To have the right perspective to be wise in the way that they think and encounter life and to have a kingdom mindset to be a new citizen kingdom but there's tons of sacrifice that we'll make for our kids 
All right? It can cost us our very lives. We want good things for them. All of those things are right, but they are not ultimate. They are not. No amount of baseball, no amount of football, no amount of after-school programs, no amount of anything makes up for that. They are not ultimate. Your job is to train them to have well-ordered thoughts, to have the right perspective, to have a kingdom mindset. That's what it means to obey God and to honor parents. So be an example. Think about it. Where do you fail to honor? Do you honor the various authority around you? Do you give double honor to elders? What does your attitude look like at work? For some of you at school, at church, in the pew, in DNA, in house gatherings. Do you give honor to other people? Do you try to outdo one another in honor? What about your joy? Is it rote duty for you? Do you do it with joy? Your children will never have joy taking out the trash if you don't have joy in showing honor to people around you. There's joy in taking out the trash. Makes the house smell better. Praise God. Right? Joy. It's easy. Effort. What about effort? This is something I think we overlook often when it comes to the idea of attitude. Effort is important in this. It's like, like the gusto. It's like the, the elbow grease that you put into making these things happen that are important. If you want children who are not lazy, put in effort. If you want children who see things and problems and, and come up with solutions rather than whine and complain, don't whine and complain. Come up with solutions. Effort. Listen, uh, obedience from duty is simply self-righteousness. Obedience from duty is just self-righteousness. It's just earning what we think we need and showing ourselves to be as good to others as we think we are. But obedience from love is a recognition of an acceptance of Christ's righteousness. That's real obedience. That's right attitude. That's right honoring. That's right ordering of thoughts. If you teach your children to obey you out of duty, that's all you'll get. Self-righteous children who one day will do whatever they can to earn their righteousness. If you teach your children to obey from love for God, then you will find them trust in Christ's righteousness. Because Christ's righteousness is the only way that we can obey. His example of obedience was perfect. He didn't challenge. He didn't delay. He didn't offer excuse. He was without sin. He was perfect. He was in the garden praying to his father. He asked if there was another way that it could go down, but there was no question he was going to follow the will of his father. Not a question in his mind. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. He's the perfect example of obedience. And he did it for us. Why did he endure the cross? For the joy set before him. Next week when we talk about how to instruct and, and how to discipline, we want to keep in mind the perfect example of instruction and obedience that we see in Christ. 
Christ followed the will of God who is perfectly good and righteous, as we said earlier. And he did it without challenge, without delay, and without excuse. Obey your parents and honor them. Let's pray together. Father, you are good. You are good, good Father. Yes, it's who you are, but Father, it's not just because we say it, but it's because of what you've done. Father, your goodness is expressed in so many different ways. You enjoy giving good gifts to your children. Father, you discipline us because you love us, as we're going to talk about next week. Father, you gave us instruction. Father, you give us reward. You give us promises. You give us attention. All these things that we seek for in in the world, attention, meaning, value. Father, you give us all these things, unbidden, just because you love us. And yes, you ask for our obedience in return, but what challenge should obedience be to such a perfect father? Your commands are not burdensome. Our sin is burdensome. Father, don't let us confuse the two. Let us recognize that your commands are for our good, for our safety. Just as we give commands to our children so that they don't hit their head on a table or fall down and hurt themselves with scissors. We don't love them. We're not judging them. We're not trying to take away their fun. Father, we want to protect them and care for them. Father, your commands do that for us. It's not burdensome. It's our sin, that is. And Father, let us see that your son paid the price for that sin. Father, let us trust that it's taken care of on the cross. Father, as we try to teach our children to be able to see their sin and their sinful hearts as being that which is what's causing them to stumble and to fall, that they would learn to trust in your grace as we show it to them, as we show them that we trust your grace. And Father, let us throw off every weight that hinders the sin that binds us and trust in the provision of your Son and the way that we would hope our children would trust in our provision. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.